With that, I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning and open with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and if you need a Bible, the guys are here. I want to make sure that you can have one in your hand to follow along with your eyes as well as your ears. And so we are going to congregationally read uh, verse 12 and 13 together, and then we're going to back up and work our way through the passage. But can I invite you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's word. We have the text on the screen for you if you'd like to refer to that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. I'll read verse 12 if you would please take verse 13. Verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We give you thanks this morning for your word, the work of your spirit, and our ability to gather today. Have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Please be seated. I've entitled today's message, Building Blocks of Christ-likeness. And I would like to begin with a question. How many of you here this morning or watching online um, notice a parental trait in yourself? And what I mean by that is some part of uh, your mom, your dad, or a parent or relative that raised you, uh, a behavior of theirs that that you notice in yourself now as an adult? Is there anyone here maybe? And another question would be then, if so, how do you suppose that that trait or that behavior uh, happened in your life? Did you drink a glass of juice? And then all of a sudden it, it came upon you. Maybe uh, you remember being sat down at the table and, and this loved one who raised you said, now I want you to be sure to have this trait or this quality of mind. Maybe you went to the shelf of inherited traits and picked it off the shelf or something. The answer to all of that would be no. Because ultimately, if so, if that is true in your lives, It was breathed into you, put into you over the process of time and relationship. Put into you over the process of time and relationship. And the Apostle Paul understood this about how God works in his people and is endeavoring to communicate that to these Christians in the town of Philippi that are so dear to his heart, he understood that the very necessary thing was that 
they continue to grow. He knew they were saved. He knew that they served. He knew that uh, they were a giving church. But he desired more of Christ-likeness in them. And so with that in mind, after a chapter of explaining really his circumstance and, and his situation, he begins to instruct them in chapter 2. So follow me now back to verse 1 of chapter 2. We'll read verse 1 and 2 together. It begins with the word therefore. And, and Paul writes and he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And so he transitions and begins with that word, therefore. You know what's interesting is this word is used only eight times in the entire book of Philippians, and six of those eight are right here in chapter 2. See if you can find them as we study. But what he is doing by employing the word therefore right then is he is building upon what he stated in the previous chapter at the end of the chapter when he dealt with them in verses 27 through 30, uh, instructing them of how to handle external conflict. You might recall, and you can glance that way if you want, but he, he told them to stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith and not terrified by your adversaries. In other words, here's how you stand against external conflict. Now what he does is he turns the corner and he wants to begin to instruct them in what they are to do with internal conflict. And as we read, we want to break down this first verse that launches us into the balance of the passage. He, he said, if there is any, he, he sets the basis for the exhortations that he is about to give. And in other words, what he's saying is, is that if, and the Greek word really is what we call a, a fulfilled condition, its tense is that of a fulfilled condition, the word if there, it's really sense. Since there is consolation in Christ, etc. He is saying to them, if you have received any of this that I'm about to share with you, then you have a responsibility to do what I am going to exhort you to do. And he will get into four specific things. What's been made very clear by most commentators, Greek expositors, etc., is that the force of Paul's language here is very difficult to really interpret in the English vernacular because it's, the Greek language is so colorful and so beautiful and so deep. Someone once said that this is like a, a torrent of eloquence coming from this pastor's heart for this people that he had not only birthed 
in the Lord, but cared for so deeply. So these four things that he deals with here, in verse 1 he says, first, if there's any consolation in Christ. Every one of us should know the consolation that Christ gives experientially. Each one of us should be able to say, yes, I know the consolation of Christ. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was referred to as the consolation of Israel. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian believers, in 2 Corinthians 1.5, he said, as our sufferings abound, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. In his letter to the believers in Thessaloniki, 2 Thessalonians 2.16, he said, God loves us and has given us an everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. I love Charles Spurgeon's application of this truth. Great turn-of-the-century preacher and orator. He said that the, the Holy Spirit is like the physician and Christ is the medicine, the consolation of Christ. But the apostle also refers to what he calls the comfort of love. It's a rhetorical question. Again, the first one was, the second one is, if there is any comfort of love. And likewise, every one of us should know the comfort of love that Christ brings. In 2 Corinthians 3, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, the apostle wrote and he said that God is the God of all comfort. And it is true that there is uh, no way that God can't comfort us and no circumstance beyond his ability to comfort us. But this word here in Philippians speaks of another nature, more than just soothing sympathy, we're dealing with a word in its origin that talks of, about strength and help. In the Latin translation of this word, it would be fortis, which also means brave. The Greek word here is paraklesis, and so the love of God, the comfort of uh, love, of God's love in our lives makes us strong, strengthens us, makes us brave. Paul goes on to talk about the fellowship. He says if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. Many of us who have been reading our Bible for a while, studying, probably know this word fellowship is uh, unique to Christians. It was a word that was developed in the Greek language to express what Christians share. Uh, koinonia means oneness, sharing of the same things in common. And koinonia was indicative of something that only those born again by the Spirit of God could share. 
And so the apostle is saying again, yes, each one of you who has been born again, you, O Philippian believer, there is this uh, common thing that you share. And he, of course, refers to the affection and mercy of God. As I stated a moment ago, so he's saying, if you've received this, you have a responsibility internally in the body of Christ to express this also among yourselves. So then he says, so fulfill my joy. Uh, Paraphrase or a, a more literal translation would be, to complete my joy. I'm already joyful about you. I'm already excited about what God is doing in your life. You've, you've sent this love gift to help the church, but now fulfill that. Complete my joy by being like-minded. And in verse 2, he's speaking of unity, 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 being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now, you may ask this morning, how is it possible for uh, Paul, the apostle, to expect these believers many miles away to, to think the same thing, to have the same mind? Answer, what he's referring to is as it relates to uh, their life goal, their eternal promise, and their relationship with one another. Think about it. An unbeliever would think you odd, those of you who are Christians this morning, maybe you watching at home. An unbeliever or someone who has yet to know Jesus Christ would think you odd to be um, hard and fast on things like integrity, honesty. So many in the world would think you odd to want to serve uh, God, to tell others about this Jesus that you know, to maybe even give of your resources to someone in a foreign land or even, you know, pack up and go be a missionary somewhere. The world, the unbelieving world, will think you a bit odd by holding true these values, but... Your brother, your sister in the Lord understands that. There should be a common thinking as it comes to those things. So now he moves to decision time. As we get into verses 3 through 5, notice he is going to put upon them decision time. Look with me. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. O Philippian believers, decision time. How so? By the exhortation in this single word, let. He uses it some four times in these three verses. 
And so by using the word let, that means they have a decision to make. It's a personal volition. He is giving the exhortation, but ultimately the response to that exhortation, he knows lies in their own uh, heart, in their own sphere of, of their life. So the instruction of what they are to do is left up to them if they will do it, choose to do it or not do it. And so let's look at each one for a moment. He says first in verse 3, let nothing be done out of through self-ambition or conceit. I love this. We often go to some, you know, the pastors conferences and we'll get our Bibles out and there's great phenomenal teachers, a lot of these men are uh, mentors from a distance for me. Think of our um, dear late Pastor Chuck Smith, of course, great Bible expositor. Uh, many come to mind, Joe Foch over on the East Coast. Uh, we think of John Corson uh, right here in our own neighborhood down in Modesto, Pastor Damian Kyle, great Bible teachers. And we're sitting there and taking notes like, what are they going to teach us? Where are they going to tell us? And they'll get to a word in, in, in a verse, and they'll say, you know, like the word all, and they'll say, the word all in Greek means all. And you go, oh, you know, oh, yeah. Well, guess what? The word nothing in Greek means nothing. So the exhortation is let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Gail Irwin, in his book, The Jesus Style, uh, emulates and really expounds on, on this because what you have there in the verse itself is what we call a contrasting word. It's the word but. So as you're reading through a verse or a passage and you, you read, uh, this is how things could be or are, and then you read but, what it's doing is showing you a contrast bef- between what comes before and what comes after. So notice, there in, in verse 3 it says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but... In lowliness of mind, let, here's the the volition again, the choice, let each esteem others better than himself. You see, the Bible knows nothing of the idea that we always must be filled with some sort of attitude of self-confident superiority in every situation. The Bible knows nothing of that. And we you know, walk into New Testament life and living, it takes it even a step further that, that we are called by the example of our Savior, by the ministry of the Word of God, and empowered by His Holy Spirit to esteem others better than ourselves. He's not here so I can talk about him, but Pastor Austin has, he used to, he still has his car, has this bumper sticker Others. 
And th that is so counter to our culture today. It is so against what our culture is today. Guess what? 1936, the first publication of a magazine called Life. Life magazine, first publication, 1936. The articles were consumed with life and the life of many. You fast forward to 1974, and we came up with the first publication of the magazine, People. So we went from life to, you know, this broad spectrum of humanity on the globe down to people. And we went along in that magazine for a while. Then all of a sudden, 1979, we came up with the magazine, Self. Oh, and from that point forward, now, not that anyone here is ever selfish, except me. Um, what is it when you take the camera and you go like this? It's a selfie, right? It's common to our culture. It is, it's pregnant in our thinking, in our media, on our TV. It's self, 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 self. And you read this, you go, wait a minute, this is like really contradictory to everything I've thrown at me and brought to me at my table of media. Why? Because you and I should be in conflict with what's happening in the unbelieving world. There should be an internal conflict because of what they're saying is important and what we know God says is important. Others. When he says in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest. Now, stop there for a moment because that I take great uh, solace in that portion of the verse because what it does tell us is that there is a responsibility, there is a uh, an innate responsibility that I am to take care of the things that are concerning me. I am to. I'm not to ignore them or embrace some sort of false humility. Oh, no, 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 I'll just wear rags. Let me take care of the others around me or whatever. I mean, that's kind of a shallow uh, depiction. But no, there, there, there's concrete scriptural, biblical evidence that we are to look out for our interests, but not only ours. But we're also to look out for the interests of others. And there should be a balance. I should, you and I should be able to look at the palette of what consumes our time, our energy, and know that there's a balance between what I invest in others and what I'm doing to take care of those things that are in my world. And then in verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you. And in the flesh, we don't want the mind of Christ. Uh, in our carn carnal nature, we're not inclined to uh, pursue the mind of Christ. But by the penetration of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can have the mind of Christ. So we can let 
Will you let? That's my question to you this morning. Is will you let yourself be willing to esteem others better than yourself? Will you let yourself be concerned about others at the same time that you're taking care of your own business? Will you let the mind of Christ dwell in you? What is that mind? He goes on to explain, verse 6, very clearly. He says, Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in In appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What is the mind of Christ? Clearly explained there. A couple of beautiful uh, words from the original. Uh, In verse 6, speaking of Jesus, he says, Who being in the form of God. Two things are uh, made clear through Greek scholars is that uh, Paul uses the word being, which informs the reader that uh, the Lord's possession of of, uh, divine empowerment did in no way leave himself when he stepped into When God stepped into human flesh, uh, Jesus didn't set his deity aside, is what that word means. Is that he didn't empty himself of deity, though he took on the form, being in the form. Uh, The word form translates uh, in the original into the word uh, morphe. And what that means is that it always signifies, I'll read the definition, it always signifies a form which truly and fully expresses the being which it underlies it. So here are these two words Paul is employing to make sure the reader knows that Jesus is God in the form of man, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's what the uh, religious leaders of his day took great uh, conflict with when he said the phrase, as Abraham was, so I am. He saw himself in the way that he is. And here, Paul is making it clear to them that the mind of Christ is clearly explained that though he is divine, uh, he didn't empty himself of that divinity, but, in verse 7, made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, And coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he 
humbled himself and became obedient. I see that the second building block as humility. The first being unity or others rather. The first being reminded of our inclination to be self-consumed and with a constant concern of others because of Christ in us, that first building block. This second building block, humility, in which the decision is to not seek to build up our own reputation, to not uh, endeavor to be looked at as superior. This was brought home to me uh, years ago and, and continues to be brought home to me today. It started with me years ago as a young worship leader serving in uh, Warehouse Christian Ministries over in Jackson. And my pastor at the time, George Stathis, was so gracious and uh, so willing to let uh, the Lord work in me, right? And so rather than putting restrictions on what I do and, and watching me and trying to micromanage, he just, you know, whatever the Lord wants, calls you to do. To, so I, I believed that the Lord wanted us to open up a, a home Bible study at this point in time, uh, early 1990, 91, 92, 93, we opened up a home Bible study in own in our home. And so, you know, went on the church bulletin, new home Bible study, Art and Sherry Finney, address, and these precious folks would come, and some of you can really relate to this. They had so much Bible knowledge that as I began to open the Bible, start teaching them, I was humbled often at what these beloved believers knew. And what became really clear to me is that we often uh, grow spiritually the most in front of others. It's not something you go do in a closet where, you know, you're, you're this age spiritually and you go away and come out and you're this age spiritually. No, we grow in front of others as we make ourselves vulnerable, transparent, to those around us. And oftentimes being vulnerable and transparent means allowing your weaknesses and your faults to be seen by others. And when your weaknesses and your faults are seen by others, then guess what? The others who see them have a choice to make to love you anyway. That's one of our favorite statements is, you have to love me. Even if I offend you, or even if I do something that is unpastoral, like, you have to love me. Sorry, it's in the Bible. <laughs> and the fact goes the other way. I am called to love you as well. And that's, that's a quality of humility. And so these building blocks of Christ-likeness in our life Others, humility, we read in the final description in verse 8, as he says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I see obedience as a third building block here. And you might ask the question, I did. It's always been striking to me that the Holy Spirit, working in the Apostle Paul, he's, he's dictating, Timothy's probably writing, that he uses the word even the death of the cross. Why even? He could have left even out, right? He became obedient to the point of death on the cross. He didn't say that. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Why? I believe Romans gives us our answer in his letter to the Christians in Rome. Paul was explaining about Christ going to the cross for the sin of humanity, for the sin of all mankind, and how in as we look at, at a human being being willing to die for someone else, Paul writes, Romans 5, 7 through 11, listen, for scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Okay, so for scarcely for a righteous man one will die. If there was just this, you know, prominent person it's the um, figurehead of our nation and he's about to get killed and so I have the opportunity to step in front of him and take that bullet I'm not saying our president is righteous but I'm using that as an illustration and I'm not being flippant at all I'm saying this is a, a prominent figurehead scarcely will someone step in front of that individual and take a bullet and die. Or perhaps for a good man, someone will even dare to die. Maybe the same individual, ah, I, I could step in, maybe I will. But the apostle goes on in Romans 5, verse 8, he says, but God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's why the apostle Paul put even death on the cross, is that while we were yet sinners, He took the penalty for our sin. And that was done out of sheer, sheer, listen, obedience. Remember Gethsemane? Oh, Father, sweating as it were drops of blood, if it be possible for this cup to pass from me, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Saint, this morning, Christ dwelling in you, 
and me every day of your Christian life, you will have an opportunity to let self die and God be glorified. You will have a decision to make in that moment. And as Paul cries out to the the Philippian Christian, the Spirit of God cries out to the, the Valley Springs Christian, to you and I this morning and says, will you let yourself be concerned with others? Will you let yourself be humbled? Will you let yourself obey? And because he did, the father's response, we sang about it many times this morning. Therefore, there's another one, verse 9. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. One day, and that day is coming soon. We live in exciting times. I will will repeat it rhetorically, and it is not original, but it is certainly true. As a Christian living today, you are either excited because of the turmoil globally. Have you seen what's going on in Israel in the last three, four, five days? It's firecrackers over there. It's not calming down. It's escalating. And yes, it goes like this. But you know, one of these days, it's just going to keep going like that until there is this necessity globally for someone to enter and bring peace to the situation. an antichrist, a world leader. We live in that time. We're we're on the cusp of seeing it, and we should be excited about that. And yet, careful, there are those at times who will profess that they are Christians that are so worried and anxious. and, And I didn't say this. In fact, I watched it on a YouTube channel from Pastor Jack Hibbs, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, and he quote, I can almost quote it, but he said, if you're a Christian, you should, you should either, he said, first of all, he said, people are either excited about the time we live in or filled with anxiety and worry. And if you are a Christian, you should be excited. If you are just filled with anxiety and worry, maybe we better go back to the drawing board and question how intimately do I really know Christ? Because really, we could get, you could get in your car today You walk out of this parking lot, drive out on that highway, and boom, next thing you know, you're no longer breathing. Our end is not promised. Our tomorrow is not promised. So are you ready? Are you ready to leave this planet by physical death? If you know Christ, you are. 
It's, it's, it's a win-win situation. Paul said it. He said, you know, I, I prefer to depart, but being here is more needful. Have you ever thought about heaven and what heaven's going to be like? And then you, you walk out into the world? Yes, let's, let's just all go. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Need you here for a little while. I've got plans for you. I want to use you as an expression of myself and my life in your sphere of influence. Verse 11, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will do that here or we will do it there, but every tongue will confess it. We'll close with verse 12 because I think it brings this kind of full circle. 12 and 13, therefore, there's the other one. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And here's the two parts. Two parts of our Christian life. Ready? You were taking a note this morning. This is it. Part one. It is God you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's not anxiety and worry. That's reverence. You and I are to, to work out our salvation. If I am saved, then reverence is going to be something that takes place in my life daily as I am going about my business. Reverence, fear, and trembling is a, an excited a position of the coming of the Lord. And as I take that place, second part, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is the one who is working in you. You and I can't manufacture that. We can't uh, order a certain, you know, Lord, I think I'd like a little bit more of of this characteristic of you, or a little bit more of that. It's the work of God in you and I. He's the one doing the work. We are responsible to remain reverent and excited about his soon and coming return. We are responsible to consider others. We are responsible to allow ourselves to be humbled. We are responsible to be obedient to his word. And why? Because God loves to work in us both to will, to accomplish his will, and for his good pleasure. Closing comment, if you're living this life trying to find pleasure for yourself, you will be ultimately constantly frustrated I can testify for 13, 14 years, I sought everything that could possibly bring pleasure in this world. And I was bankrupt of purpose, bankrupt of joy, bankrupt of satisfaction. If you're living to please yourself today, and at some time in your life, you said yes to Jesus Christ. 
you will be frustrated and empty. Why? Because God created you to live for his good pleasure. He wants your life to bring him pleasure. And once you and I bow to that principle, we wake up every day saying, God, not my will, but yours. We wake up each morning and say, your mercies are new, brand new. Today, Lord, how may I please you? You will find the meaning of what Jesus said when he said, I came to, I came to give you life and it more abundantly. The building blocks of Christ-likeness, others, humility, and obedience. God help us, right? God give it. We desire it. We seek it. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word this morning. What a pleasure, what a delight, what a feast it is to sit before you and listen to you speak through this divine, inerrant, eternal thing called your word. We are grateful. We are humbled. We are convicted, we are blessed. And you know each one of our lives today, you know what we walked in this door with. You know what our need is, and so as we come this morning, we're going to invite you, Lord, to do those things which we have heard the Apostle Paul speak to the Christians in Philippi. Because we know, Lord, that if we will just simply look to you, that you will do what we need you to do. And this morning, we're just asking you to have your way in us, your people. If you're here this morning and you haven't given your life to Christ. Or maybe you've said the words, but it's not impacting the way you live. And as the word has been spoken, you've heard the Lord speak more plainly. That he wants all of you. He's not satisfied with only part of you. This is your opportunity right now, this morning, to refresh, reset your life to Him. And that's you. If you're here, if you're watching online, don't miss the opportunity. Just cry out to Him as we worship. He'll hear you. He sees you. He loves you. He loves you and me. Can we say amen?